If you're able, would you remain standing and turn to John's first epistle, chapter 1. We're going to read the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1 as we approach our second sermon on this, this series. The first epistle of John, chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of our Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you'd attend the preaching of your word. We pray that it would be done faithfully. We pray that it should be done with um, power and strength. And we pray that your spirit would apply it to all of our hearts. For us in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Christianity is either the whole Christ, fully divine, fully human, or nothing. There's nothing in between. We either are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, or we are not Christians. Now, we have a system of doctrines, we have traditions that we follow, but at the end of the day, Christianity is Jesus Christ. Take Jesus or Christ out of it, and you no longer have Christianity. Take the human or the divine out of it, and you have some other religion, that's, but it's not the religion of the Bible. Brothers and sisters, I hope we understand that the God-man Jesus Christ is of the essence of whom we are as Christians. If He doesn't exist, or if He's anything less than the fully divine and fully human together, we are of all people the most miserable and we are to be pitied because we follow a false God and a God that cannot do anything for us. And that is the point that John makes throughout this, this little letter and he does that specifically in these four verses that we read together. These four verses are really about the two natures of Christ, about the union of the divine and the human into one person. In theological terms, these verses are about the hypostatic union of the person of Christ. Now, it sounds like something that uh, you should uh, read about when you don't, don't you, you need to fall, fall asleep, but you are not sleepy, so you read about it, but that's not the case. Stay with me. And I wanted to show how incredibly practical this doctrine is. How vivifying, how giving of life this doctrine is that God revealed Himself in the flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the idea of the hypostatic union of Christ 
that is probably, at least to me, in the whole of Christian doctrine, the most difficult doctrine to get my own head around it, my own mind around it. How in one person you can have the divine and the human united forever without being able to be separated, without confusion of the two natures, without one nature bleeding into the other nature, and that being a forever existence from the moment of conception on. Yet it is utterly essential to our faith and practical. Now, this is a short epistle, so there is a hope that we have be done before 2030. There's only five chapters, 105 verses, 2,141 words in the original language. So if you're writing a paper, that's less than three pages long, if you're going, uh, even if you do double-spaced. And we saw that the Apostle John wrote this in the early 90s, or A.D. 90s, and he likely wrote it to the church in Ephesus or to the churches in the neighborhood, which is the Lycus Valley, the, the churches that are listed in the book of Revelation, those seven churches, most of them likely started by the Ephesian church. And we know that by this time, John is a pastor there in Ephesus, likely took, it, took over for, uh, for Timothy, uh, who was the pastor before him. And the primary impetus, what led him to write this letter, was that John became aware of false teachers who had come into the church and were threatening her well-being. These teachers were teaching that the incarnation of God the Son never happened. That Jesus, that the Son, the Christ, never became human like we are. And they're also teaching that faith in God does not require obedience. That you can have true faith in God and have a life that doesn't reflect that faith. To answer these issues, then John writes First John. What I want to do today, I want to do, go through the first four verses in a general way, make some comments about this passage, and then come back and um, apply these four verses. So if you can stick with me through the first part, uh, you benefit from it in the second part. Uh, and I say that because in order to actually understand what's going on, in order to apply it, we do have to dig a little bit into the grammar of the passage. I was telling somebody and my wife last night that when you're preaching a sermon, it's like cooking a meal. You, 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 know, you cook a meal, you prevent, you're supposed to present a beautiful meal to your guests, but you never show them the dirty pans. You leave them in the kitchen. That's your exegesis. That's your Greek and Hebrew. Well, we're going to take a look at a few dirty dishes this morning so that we can actually set the table for the rest of the, the epistle there. Notice that John abruptly starts this book. There's no, hi, how are you doing? There's no greeting. There's no introduction. He just starts teaching right, right away. And some say that uh, there was a cover letter that went with this epistle. As a matter of fact, some suggest that Second John, the next book over, was actually a cover letter to First John. But more likely, it, this letter starts so abruptly because John was so concerned with the well-being of his beloved church that he didn't want to waste any time before getting to the subject matter. He wanted to to start dealing with it straight away instead of uh, spending any time on any introduction. This is a letter unlike any other letter of the New Testament. There's only one other letter 
that starts this way in the letter of Hebrews, which is much more of a sermon than actual, an actual letter. And these four verses are the nightmare of English teachers because they form one sentence uh, in the original language, just one sentence with several subordinate clauses. A subordinate clause is a piece of the sentence that depends on another piece of the sentence. Usually they depend on the same common verb there. Sarah, I told you about the dirty dishes. It's, they're coming out right now. Notice also that verse 2 in our translation, and so the New King James and the ESV both do that. Verse 2 is a parenthetical comment. It's, 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 it's not part of the main argument. And that's signified by having the two dashes, one in the beginning and one at the end. What means is that you could remove verse 2. It's not that verse 2 is not important, but as far as the flow of the argument, you could remove verse 2 and still have a cohesive argument with verses 1, 3, and 4. But we're going to see that verse 2 is also important. And I want you to notice all the which clauses. There are four of them in verse 1, which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have looked, which we have handled. This is all in verse 1. And the fourth one is in verse 3, which we have seen and heard. All these clauses, all these which clauses, are dependent on the word declare in verse 3. Verse, the word declare governs the meaning of these four uh, verses here. John Calvin suggests that this preface be summarized as follows. We declare to you the word of life, which was from the beginning and really testified to us in all manner of ways that life has appeared in him. So the, the declaring is the main thing that John wants us to pay attention to. That's governing everything else. He's declaring a particular thing, and that particular thing is defined by the, all these which clauses that are there. And the, the, that, that word translated declare in our version means to proclaim by commission. It's not just a, a simple speaking. It's not just a simple saying things, but it's proclaiming something when you're commissioned to do so. John is speaking with Christ's authority as a commissioned apostle. That, that's, the, that's all involved in that word. Christ said that his apostles would proclaim his word in his authority. And John and the other apostles were sent out to witness to Christ. If you look at how the Great Commission is stated in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You shall receive, talking to the, the, the apostles, you shall receive power from when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And John says that's what he's doing. He's bearing witness in verse 2 to what Christ Gave him. So John, when he writes 1 John, is not suggesting things to us. He's not saying, he's not throwing some ideas out there. He's not just you know, saying, hey, if you have time, listen to what I'm saying. He's authoritatively proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. That is, the divine and the human have become one in Jesus Christ. And he's doing that by the authority that Christ gave to him. John and the other apostles were compelled to proclaim the gospel 
of Christ and to proclaim the whole Christ. Remember when Peter and John are arrested in Acts chapter 4 and they're told not to proclaim Christ, the whole Christ anymore? This is how they answer. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot speak the things which we have, we cannot but speak the things which we have heard and seen. That's what the apostles do. They authoritatively proclaim Christ, the whole Christ, divine and human in one person, so that the elect of God can come to faith in Jesus Christ. They had the same compulsion to preach as Jeremiah. Remember the Jeremiah story? Every time he opened his mouth, he got in trouble. He was preaching, and he found himself hanging on the gate. Then he found himself in the bottom of a pit, all because he proclaimed the word of God. And eventually in chapter 1, he says, you know what, I'm just going to stop. I'm not going to say a thing anymore. I'm tired of suffering for this. It always gets me in trouble. And this is why he says to himself when he decided to stop preaching. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak anymore in his name, talking about God. But his word, Jeremiah says, was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. That's all involved in this proclamation by commission. The burning in the heart given by Jesus Christ and the apostles then proclaiming. So we're going to call what John is saying concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the apostolic proclamation. Because it wasn't just John's message. It was the message of the apostles. And that's what he's proclaiming here in 1 John, specifically in verses 1 through 4. And there are two objectives that John wants to accomplish in writing this preface. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, and then you have in our translation, that you also may have fellowship. Literally, so that you may have fellowship. That's one of the purposes, one of the objectives that he's declaring the full, the whole Christ to the church. So they have, may have fellowship. And then he continues in verse 4. He says, And these things we write to you so that your joy may be full. He's writing so that Christians may have fellowship with each other and with the Trinity. And then he's writing so that Christians may have joy. So that's how, this is how this passage works together. All right, so let's put the dishes back in the kitchen and let's now see what this means and how we can apply it to us. And the first thing I wanted to, to show you is that John preaches, proclaimed by commission, a Jesus who is divine. Not just a man, but God himself. And notice that this letter starts very similarly to the Gospel of John. Makes sense, right? Same guy wrote him writing by both of them. Remember how the Gospel of John begins? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And you notice in verse 1 of 1 John that the Word of life has existed from the beginning. That which was from the beginning concerning the Word of life in verse 1. That, that has existed from the beginning. And if something was there in the beginning... It must have existed prior to the beginning. If you're already there when the beginning happens, it means that you have to exist, exist prior to that. That is to say, it exists without a beginning. It existed 
eternally. The word of life, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself, because you cannot separate the message from the person, have existed forever. And John does say that more clearly in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, where he says, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And then in verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. So here we have the word of life, primarily referring to the apostolic proclamation, the words that give life, the gospel of salvation, united with the person of Jesus Christ, existing forever, eternally, both before the beginning. And this word of life is personified as the eternal life that was with the Father. Look at verse 2. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Eternal life is a person, and His name is Jesus Christ, and He was with the Father forever, because He is God Himself. As God the Son, He was with the Father before the Incarnation, and He continues to be with the Father. In John 17, verses 1-5, through Jesus prays for himself. And one thing he prays is that now that his work is about to be done, that the fellowship he had, the glory he had from all eternity with the Father would be restored. And it was indeed restored. So John teaches in these few verses that Jesus is fully divine. We're going to come back to that because throughout the book, John comes back to that. But also John teaches that Jesus Christ is fully human. And as expected, John spends more time on the humanity of Jesus than on his deity, since the humanity was what was under attack. That's what he's dealing with. It was the early church had more issues with Jesus being a man than it did with him being God, which has flip flopped. Today we, we tend we most people tend to think, oh, Jesus was a good man, but the idea he was also divine is foreign to to them. And notice how John appeals to his physical senses. To show the church that Jesus was real. It was a real human, not something else. In verses 1, 2, and 3, he says, we have seen him. And he's interesting, he says, we have seen it with our eyes. Like, I put my eyeballs on him. It's not just a figuratively seen with the mind. He actually saw him with his eyeballs. And notice that he keeps on using we throughout the, this passage. And later on, he, he, after the, the, the introduction... He reverts back to I. And this is important because the we's and the hours tells us that John is not giving his private testimony. John is speaking on behalf of the apostles. He's relating to us the witness of the apostles. So he has seen it with, they have seen it with their eyes. This, this is a real human being. Not only that, in verses 1 and 3, they have heard him. And here, the way it's written, it describes the vividness of that hearing. That the hearing of Jesus happened, to, by this time, 60 plus years ago. And yet, the voice of Jesus was still ringing in their ears. They could vividly hear Jesus speaking to them the, the, in the upper room discourse, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the, the Olivet discourse, Jesus speaking there. And then he continues, not only have we seen him, not only we have heard him, but we've looked upon him in verse 1. Now to see is the regular seeing with your eyes. To look upon is to see with intelligence, is to understand what one is seeing. Right? Just because we're seeing something doesn't mean that we understand what we're seeing. 
Does it make sense what I'm saying? But this idea of looking upon it is looking and say, oh, I know, I understand what, what, who this guy is. I understand what I'm seeing. And then he says in verse 1, not only that, we've seen him, we have heard him, we have understood what we're seeing, but we also have handled him, we have touched him in verse 1. Likely a reference to the events after the resurrection. Remember that one Sunday as they are in the upper room, Jesus appears in the midst of them in Luke 24 and says, Peace be with you. And they think it's a ghost, a spirit of some sort, some sort of apparition. And Jesus says, No, no, no. Here, touch my hands. Touch my side. I, I am real. Handle me. Touch me. Know that I am a real human. And they are super afraid. They don't want to do it. And Jesus says, Okay, I'll prove it to you. Do you have some food? I'm going to eat it. Do ghosts eat food? Do apparitions eat food? No, humans eat food. I'm going to eat with you. John is clear that Jesus, the Jesus he knew was flesh and blood. Not some idea. Not Casper the ghost, the friendly ghost. Not an apparition. Not a spirit. But a real flesh and blood human being. And the divine and the human <coughs> dwelt in one person. That's what verse 2 teaches us. Jesus Christ, the God-man. Look at verse 2. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This verse brings both natures together. That which was from the beginning could be seen, heard, and touched because He Himself made himself manifest, that is, he appeared. And that's important. Humanity was only able to see the word of God, the word of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he appeared to them. He initiated it. He manifested himself in the flesh to his people. As John says in the gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what did we do? After that happened, we beheld his glory. John Stott, in his commentary on 1 John, says, We could not have seen the one who was eternally with the Father unless he had taken the initiative deliberately to manifest himself. Human beings can apprehend only what God is pleased to make known. Why is this important? Why this mighty doctrine with a complicated name, the hypostatic union of the person of Christ, is important? Well, let me give you a brief explanation since the rest of the book is going to be talking about that, and we're going to keep on revisiting it over and over again. Why is it important? Where do you think we begin? Because the Bible teaches it. So that's, that's first. But besides that, there are important theological implications of this doctrine. Jesus Christ, your Savior, must be human in order to obey God's law as a human, as a man. He came to do what Adam could not do as our representative. He came to fulfill the covenant of works. That is, the, he came to perfectly obey every requirement of the law of God for us. And in order to stand in our place, he had to be just like we are, fully humans. Paul teaches that in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, when he says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. 
The righteousness that Jesus Christ earned was human righteousness. So that when we believe in him, that human righteousness is counted as ours. As a human, he obeyed humanly so that when we believe in him, God sees us as that perfect human that Jesus was. Also, if a payment was going to be offered for our sins, you had to be in kind. You had to be a human that needed to pay for that. A human needed to pay for the sins of humans on the cross. So Jesus Christ, in order to be your Savior, had to be fully man. Otherwise, he's no Savior at all. But Jesus Christ must also be fully God in order to be able to bear the infinite punishment for the sins of the elect in a finite amount of time. He was crucified just for a few hours. And in those few hours, he bore the infinite wrath of God due your sin. And in order to be able to do that, he had to be fully God, because finite beings cannot bear infinity in a limited space of time. And we, he would have to be both of those at the same time. Otherwise, he cannot save you. So when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what we believe concerning him. And the result of the apostolic proclamation about the whole Christ, the divine and the human, results in fellowship and joy in verses 3 and 4. As I said earlier, sometimes we think that these deep and awesome and sometimes hard to get our minds around doctrines are a waste of time. We think that we would be better served by a sermon that would tell us how to raise our kids or how to solve our conflicts or how to live well with our in-laws. When... And Tim laughs. When we are tempted to think this way, when you are tempted to think this way, remember, remember two things, okay? One is this. This life and the wonderful relationships and the blessings that we experience are not all there is. It is not even the most important thing. Satan would be content if all that we cared was living the best most moral life now. He'd be fine with that. Go right ahead. Focus on the now. Focus on what's going on right now. Live your best life now, even if that the best life is a moral you know, life. Because Christ tells us, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the, the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The second thing you want to, I want you to think when you think, man, this is a waste of time to be talking about these deep doctrines. Who cares about them? Tell me how I can live with my laws. Is this. This life is better lived in faith in the person and the work of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole Christ, the God-man, is the one who opens the doors of fullness of life, both now and forevermore. And that's the point that John makes in verses 3 and 4. Faith in the whole Christ brings you into fellowship. Look at the end of verse 3, where John says, And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Faith in the whole Christ brings you into fellowship with the triune God. The false teachers were saying that you could have fellowship with God apart from the whole Christ. 
You don't need the human Jesus in order to have fellowship with, with Christ. You just need what I have to sell you. If, you. if you buy the teaching I have to sell you, then you're good. You can't fellowship with God. And yet, the only way to be, to, to be in fellowship with the true God of the Bible is through the whole Christ. Father, and it's through the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he has accomplished as the man, God, the God-man. And a fellowship with the triune God is fellowship with the apostles. Look at verse 3, again, the beginning. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. Again, the us refers to the apostles who were witnesses of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point is very, this point is very important because we often base, we often base fellowship on all kinds of things that may not be what the Bible tells us. We have fellowship with the apostles by believing in the things they proclaim about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because of our fellowship with the apostles, then we have fellowship with the church throughout the ages through our common faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice the two hymns we sang this morning? They're both 1,000 and 1,700 years old. We are united. We have fellowship with the church through the ages because we believe in that Christ who is fully God and fully man in one person. In, uh, during the, the month of, of October and for the adult Sunday school, we're going to consider early church fathers who were influential in the Reformation. We're going to consider Tertullian and Chrysostom and Augustine and Bernard, which is a little later, but in that, we see how united you are by one common faith. And that common faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the God-man who saves us. In addition, we have fellowship with the church throughout the world today because we believe in the name of Christ. We, begin, we believe in the same whole Christ, divine and human. Uh, one of our brothers there in, in Tyre sent me a little video of their worship this morning in which they were singing a song about the Christ that we are singing about right here today. We have fellowship with the entire visible church because we confess the same God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where the rubber meets the road, okay? All of this, all these connections are represented by our fellowship in the local church. These things are experienced right here with these people that we've covenanted together to serve the Lord with. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, where he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's our fellowship together. Why? Because there is one body one spirit, just you are calling, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And he lists seven ones with the focus, the middle one being that we are together, we live in fellowship because we have one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ, the God-man. In a very real sense, fellowship with the Father and the Son is experienced in our fellowship with one another. And that's the point that John makes throughout. He says, you say you love God, but you hate your brother? And he's not talking about the blood, a blood relative there, talking about the people in the church. 
You cannot experience God apart from God's people. So what is fellowship? Fellowship is a shared life. Simon Kissmaker says, when people have fellowship, they share their mutual gifts, goals, and goods. This is how the book of Acts chapter 4 describes the apostolic church fellowship. It says in verse 32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands and of houses sold them and brought in the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them as the apostles' feet, and they distributed it to each as one had need. Well, fellowship was their shared life. They lived life together. And our evangelism and our life together must display what Jesus has done for us. The whole Christ brings us together so that we can share our lives with each other now and forever. If you don't like now, you're not going to like heaven either. That's as simple as that. Again, John Stott says, We cannot be content with an evangelism which does not lead to drawing to the drawing of converts into the church, <coughs> nor a church life whose principal cohesion is a superficial camaraderie instead of a spiritual fellowship with Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then Kissmaker warns us, and he says, Those who are already Christians must take the words of John seriously. He says that the purpose of this great plan of God for the revelation of Himself to men and for the salvation in fel- is fellowship. This is, this is what it's all about. The entire plan of redemption results in fellowship. Fellowship with a triune God. Fellowship with one another. How then can believers be content with, what, with that which disrupts their fellowship? And I hear something like that. How can believers be content with that which disrupts their fellowship? And I start thinking about what other people have done. That's my natural default. Oh, this person has broken our fellowship by doing this. And that person has broken our fellowship by doing this. But that's not where we need need to begin. What have I done to break the fellowship of the body of Christ? What have I done to break the unity in the body of Christ? What, What ginormous log do I have in my eye? that has broken the fellowship in the body of Christ. Kissmaker continues, it says, Oh, how can they be content with an evangelism that wins men to God but fails to draw them into a vital, invisible relationship with one another? Fellowship is the result of faith in the divine and human in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, faith in the whole Christ unites us in fellowship and brings us joy. Look at verse 4. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. I never met a person who said, you know what? The joy thing is overrated. Not really wanting it. I want some sadness in my life. I want some disruption in my life. I don't want the joy thing. That person doesn't exist. You know why? Because our design is to enjoy God. 
And what, what is part of the word enjoy? Joy. To have joy in God. John proclaims Christ, the God-man, so that we may have joy. When we truly find Christ, we value Him, we treasure Him, and that treasuring results in joy. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus tells a very short parable, almost like just a metaphor. And He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. You know how it goes next? And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's your attitude towards Christ. You treasure him in your heart so that you have joy. In Romans 15, 13, Paul says in the benediction, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. It is the believing in the Lord Jesus Christ that brings that joy. In Philippians, 2, uh, in Philippians 1, Paul says that the Philippians, he's excited for the Philippians because their joy of faith, or their joy that comes from faith. Now, our joy won't be perfect till the resurrection. That's when it's going to be ultimately completed, when our bodies and souls are purified completely, brought together, and can behold Jesus as He is, for we shall be like Him. But through faith in the whole Christ, we begin to experience what God wrought joy is in this life. Because the opposite of joy is self-centeredness. The opposite of joy is this inward look. Oh, my circumstances. Or what's going on in my life. Or what people have done for me. Faith in Jesus Christ frees us from that, all of that. As a matter of fact, faith in Jesus Christ is described as death to self. And that's the beginning of joy. The psalmist says, speaking of Christ in Psalm 16, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And at the right hand of the Father is Jesus Christ. It is in Him the God-man in whom we find joy. Now this, this short preface packs a lot of punch. This whole epistle packs a lot of punch. Jesus Christ is both divine and human in one person. That is the most basic element of the apostolic proclamation. Faith in the whole Christ unites us to the triune God and brings us to, together into fellowship with all the saints and especially with those that are around us. And our fellowship with one another is full of joy. And we need to reckon it as so. Jesus, uh, John doesn't say it, it might become that. He says it is. Our fellowship with one another is full of joy. We just need to reckon to be so. We need to believe that and look at it as that instead of just thinking of it as something else, as a burden or as a bunch of people that I don't like or whatever. Because you've been united to Christ. And because you've been united to Christ, you've been united to one another. And that is great joy. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for sending us your Son, who is fully God and fully man. The perfect Savior, who is indeed able and does save the elect.
Thank you for your work in us and help us to rejoice in that work as we fellowship with one another. For asking Jesus' name, amen.